And so if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6. Uh, and I've titled today's message, The Path of Discipleship. And whenever you think about uh, different careers that have a career path, uh, you think about the different things you have to do in order to get to the title that you want. So for example, if you want to be a nurse, you have to go to school, you have to get some sort of undergraduate degree to where you can do that. And then you go into nursing school, then you do those classes, and then uh, then you become a nurse. Now, obviously, there, it's probably a little bit more complicated than that, and Victoria can very much attest to that. Um, and, and, but the reality is, it, it, you have to go a certain path to get there. The same with becoming a doctor, right? You have to go to school, then you have to go to med school, then you have to do a residency, and then you can become a doctor. If you want to be a teacher, you have to go and get your bachelor's degree, and then you, you do some, some student teaching, and then uh, you get your licensure, become a teacher. Now, obviously, that could be a little bit more complicated as well, but the reality is you want to start somewhere, and then you work to get to that path. The same way with becoming an electrician or contractor, any other job that you can think of, there's normally a path to get there. But what about Christianity? See, Christianity doesn't work the same way. Because in Christianity, we don't go to school to become Christians. Right? We, don't, we don't do on-the-job training to become Christians. We don't go through apprenticeships to become Christians. Instead, discipleship begins when you become a Christian. You don't fix your life first and then become a Christian. You don't change your behavior. You don't change who you are on the outside before Jesus changes who you are on the inside. But the difference between maybe a career path and the path of discipleship is that a career path, once you get to that job that you want, there's not really much further you can go unless you're changing titles or the kind of job that you have. But with discipleship, you start as a disciple of Christ and then you grow in that and you are made complete then at the final day when you get to be with Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what the path of discipleship looks like. What does it look like, one, to be called as a disciple? And then we're going to look at what is the work of a disciple or the work of discipleship. What are some things that we do as followers of Christ to saturate ourselves with God's Word and to grow as Christians? And then finally, we're going to look at the endurance of discipleship. So the passage we're going to go through today really kind of separates out into three, these three different categories. The call of discipleship, the work of discipleship, and the endurance of discipleship. So if you're taking notes, this is how we're going to break down today's passage. And I said last week, that some of this might get a little weird. <laughs> and so that's still going, to get the ca- it's still going to be the case. But as we work through God's Word together, there's some great things for us to take away. And my hope this morning for you is that if you've never began the work, of the path of discipleship, that that would be something that you would begin today. And if you are a disciple of Christ, if you are a Christian, my hope is that you would find encouragement in this text and that you would work to grow closer to the Lord. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6, verses 41 through 71. We're going to be in 30 verses today. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for you, for your, give for you the life of the world is in my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. Who, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. From Jesus knew from the beginning that those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to worship you this morning. God, to be in your word. I pray that you would uh, be with us as we walk through this text together, God, as we look at the path of discipleship. And Father, what it means for us to not only be called as disciples, but Father, to live as disciples of Christ. God, we know that, Father, it's a little different than it was then with the, with the main 12 disciples, but God, we know that much of the process is the same. Father, that you draw us to yourself. God, that you show us in the way that we should live and grow closer to you. God, the way that we should abide in you and you in us. And the way that we should endure difficult seasons, seasons of doubt, seasons of difficulty. God, so that at the very end of all of this, Father, that we get to be with you and live with you forever. God, we pray for everyone in this room, Father, who hears this word. God, that they would make an assessment of their own life to see where they are with you. Whether they have not began, whether they're just beginning, or God, whether they have been enduring for a while, God, I pray that they would be drawn near to you. 
And God, we thank you for today. We thank you for who you are. It's your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're starting first with the call of discipleship. The call of discipleship. So we, we again, we're going to be breaking this down in three different sections. The first is going to be verses 41 through 51. And, you know, it's kind of convenient that your Bibles actually break this out a little bit. Um, I, I believe it really doesn't matter what translation you use. It's all, it's all uh, separated out the same, or at least I, the ones I've checked it is. And so it kind of works out that we're going to look at it this way. But the first is we start with this call of discipleship. And in this section of Scripture, it almost seems like a, a repeat of what Jesus has said before. See, if you were with us last week, one of the things that we talked about was how Jesus is the bread of life. And we talked about this idea that the Father has to draw people in in order for them to know Him. And so what Jesus is doing here is He's kind of, he's kind of rebuttaling everything that He had just talked about last week in John chapter 6. And so you're going to have a little bit of a, of a repeat of what's going on here, but He does that with intention. And we're going to dive into maybe a few more things that we didn't dive into last week. Partially because... My throat was killing me last week, and now I feel much better, so we might be here a while. I'm joking. <laughs> so when we look at this crowd, this crowd doesn't believe that he was sent from heaven. They knew his parents, and so they thought this was a little absurd. right? They saw that Jesus had claimed to be sent from heaven, but they're thinking, we know your mom and dad. That doesn't make any sense. See, they're not understanding in the way that Jesus is, is approaching this. Now, the reality is, Jesus never kept his parents a secret, right? It wasn't that Mary was never allowed to be around Jesus. In fact, Mary was there at the very first of Jesus' signs in the Gospel of John. So his parents were well known. But here's the thing. Jesus has said things like this before. The things that we're seeing in John chapter 6, that he's claiming to be the bread of life, claiming to be sent from heaven, claiming to be the Son of God, the Son of Man. He's made these claims before. And others have heard it. He said that he was sent from heaven. And others have heard it. That the Father had sent him. And others have heard it. He's also performed great signs. We're actually getting close to the end of the seven signs that we see in the Gospel of John. So there's been a lot. And there's many in here that John never even mentioned. Because in order to, to describe every sign that Jesus did would fill this entire book and some. It's too much to write down. Yet, some responded differently with the same information. Some responded with belief and faith, and then some responded like this crowd. Some responded in belief and faith in Christ when they heard this, these things. And others responded like, like this crowd, like, how can that be possible? We know your mom and dad. Now, we have to remember this other truth too, right? Because I think with us having the Bible in our hands, it's really easy for us to forget that the disciples and those that are hearing this didn't have the Bible in its complete state in order to read, to know these things already. The disciples, those that walked with Jesus, weren't there when He was born. They didn't, they didn't see what happened in that manger. They didn't see the things that happened before that. Many disciples followed Jesus even without great and wonderful signs. If you remember back when we talked about John the Baptist and his ministry, there are disciples that began to walk with Jesus before his first miracle at the wedding. And this crowd in particular witnessed and tasted 
of one of Jesus' most popular miracles where he turned a little boy's lunch into enough to feed Bud Walton Arena. This crowd was there for that. They experienced that. They tasted and saw that the Lord was good. Yet they still didn't believe. So why is that? Why is it that you can have two people with the same amount of evidence experiencing the same thing, yet they come to different conclusions? Irrefutable evidence yet they still didn't believe. This crowd specifically. And he tells us in verse 44 why. Verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. They didn't believe because the Father did not draw them. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that they never experienced the draw and call of discipleship. Now, We've actually talked about this a lot <laughs> in reading the Gospel of John. This is not brand new. Uh, we've, we've touched on this quite a bit. In fact, any time that, um, that you hear me give an invitation or talk about salvation, I, I always try to emphasize that God is the one who saves us, not ourselves. And that we want to pray that God would soften our hearts, that we would be revealed, and that we would know Him. I've heard many of your testimonies in the way that you've heard the Gospel hundreds of times, but at one point, For some reason, finally, you begin to see your need for God. That comes from God working in us initially. So this text, though, is so heavy with this idea. right? It's not even just here. It's also later on in John chapter 6 that that I can't help, but we've got to talk about it a little bit this morning and maybe a little bit more in depth. So what does it mean for God to call us to discipleship? And why is it that some are drawn and others are not, are not given the same information. Well, the first thing that we can look at is this, and what Jesus is teaching, is that those who are called to discipleship are part of God's chosen people. Now, if you're familiar with the names of doctrines and fall under what we call uh, the doctrine of election, I'm not going to get super in-depth in this morning about it, but the, in really like in a very basic sense, the doctrine of election is that God elects who He will save. Now, it's viewed differently the way this works by different groups of people. So here, here's a couple of examples of that. Um, the first idea is that some believe that God specifically did choose those who would be called to Him before the foundation of the world. Others believe that because God is sovereign, meaning that He is in power and control of all things, that He knows our hearts and knows how our lives will play out. Therefore, He knows who are going to believe and those who will not. But then there's another category of people that believe that you become elect through Jesus whenever you put your faith and trust in Him. Now, there's a lot of different sides to this, and I don't really see it more as a one side or the other. It's more of a spectrum of belief and understanding. And if you've talked to anybody about this, you know it is definitely a spectrum. (laughs) At least that's been in my experience, especially when I went to seminary. I learned a lot about that spectrum, but man, it was some really good conversation. And can I say this too, just as before we get into this anymore, um, I believe that you can be on different places in the spectrum and still live in harmony with one another. I think it's ridiculous that there are people that see this part differently than one another and refuse to worship together. And you may not experience that, but I've seen that and it's really heartbreaking. But anyways, let's go back to this. So, so here's the thing. Here's why I'm telling you all this. Because whatever side of the understanding you fall on, whatever, wherever you are and wherever you sit and you're studying God's Word and your understanding of this doctrine and the way that it works, 
Here is what is foundational. And here is what we cannot waver from. And this is why Jesus taught on it. And this is why it's so important. Because of this foundational truth. That apart from God's sovereign grace in our lives, we cannot be saved. Apart from His sovereign grace in our lives, we cannot be saved. We need Him truly and desperately. Wherever you are on the spectrum of how this works, we have to understand this, that we do not save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we earn that grants us salvation. God has to work in us first. It's so difficult for us to see our need for Him by ourselves and alone. I think about the Apostle Paul, for example, whenever he was on the road to Damascus and how God literally shielded his eyes and really woke him up. I think about my own life and and how I became a Christian. I had gone to church for a while. I had prayed the sinner's prayer over and over again, but I never was actually a Christian. It wasn't until God allowed me to go through a deer stand accident that truly woke me up to my need for him. He used my physical brokenness to show me the brokenness of my heart. And there are many things that God maybe does with you in that too. But the reality is, we need God to draw us to Himself. Now this concept is not isolated in John. It's everywhere. So here's what I'm going to do. I don't have these passages on the screen, but I'm going to run through some of these quicker and summarize them, okay? So the first, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-4. through Says, blessed be the Lord, the, the blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Romans eight twenty nine through thirty says this: From whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many believers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And in that same passage, he says that we are adopted as sons so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. And the process of adoption, someone comes to us, chooses us, and brings us into the family. And the process of adoption, the adoptee doesn't do anything to earn that familial spot. Rather, it's the parents that choose them and bring them in. We didn't earn our inheritance with God, it was given to us freely through His Son, Jesus, for those who would believe and trust in Him. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, we are called. In Deuteronomy 7, 6-8, we are a chosen people. In 1 Peter 2, 9, we are a special people, His royal priesthood. In Jeremiah 1, 5, He knew us before the womb. Before, before we were even thought up of by our parents, He knew us before we ever came to be known in this world. And then in John 15, 16, Jesus says this in one of my favorite passages of Scripture. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give to you. This is why I say what I say when I say that God needs to work on our hearts first. It's in Him that we are called and that we respond to faith. Now, you hear all that, and there's some people that believe that, okay, well, if that's true, then I don't have to do anything, right? I can just sit around and and wait for God just to make it happen. Well, no, that's not true either. God's sovereignty does not discount our human responsibility. We are called to trust, believe, and pray, and we are called to serve and share the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, uh, he 
uh, said that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies, but they're very close friends. Now, we don't know someone's heart. At the end of the day, we just don't. Right? As much as I want to know all your hearts and know precisely where you are with the Lord, at the end of the day, I don't. Only God truly knows your heart and the condition that you're in. We don't know who's going to be saved and who will not. We don't know who's going to truly put their, their trust in Jesus and who won't. And it's not our responsibility to know. Praise God, He doesn't tell us that beforehand. Rather, we are commanded to share the gospel and make disciples. And we are to do that well and faithfully. We are not God. We're not meant to be God in this process. We are meant to be obedient. To, to, to share the gospel, to serve Him, and to trust Him with our lives. So what else is Jesus teaching us in this passage? He's teaching us that those who believe will also have eternal life. That those that the Father has drawn, that those who believe and respond in faith have eternal life. In verse 47, he tells us whoever believes in him has this, and this belief comes from the work of God in our hearts, and our response is to faith, in faith and trust in God. They are sealed in him. Again, this has nothing to do with our works. Right? None of this is earned stuff. And then he tells us again that he's the bread of life. Again, he repeats it over and over again. If you read all of John chapter 6, starting with his, with his explanation of him being the bread of life, he says it countless times. And then he says it here again. Then he finishes with this wonderful promise in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. Church, what a wonderful promise that we have this morning in that. Anyone who eats of this bread will live forever. Anyone who truly believes and trusts Christ will live forever. Not on earth, right? Like not in our broken bodies that are sufferable to migraines. I'm one of them, by the way. Uh, to joint aches, to ailments, to illnesses. Rather, life eternally with Him where there will be no suffering, no sorrow, and no pain. That is the life that we are promised forever. To take this bread of life means that we enter into discipleship with Christ. With the call that He places on us. Following after Christ and seeking to live for Him. This is how our path to discipleship begins. So we move on to verses 52-59 and we go to the work of discipleship. The work of discipleship. Now, see, Jesus doesn't, do, doesn't just repeat what He was teaching beforehand. He goes into it a little bit deeper because He can understand that this crowd is getting a little either confused or they're not liking what Jesus is saying. So he drives into a few more truths that, they would, that they're failing to grasp, a few more things to drive home with them that they would take. Now, remember last week when I told you that there was a couple things in this, in this part of the passage that might be a little hard to discern and look at? Well, here it is. <laughs> when I was reading it earlier, if you're not really familiar with Scripture or familiar with this text, this might seem a little odd because he's talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. So here's, here's what I want us to do in the way that we're, we approach this. We're going to reread this, but I want to frame it first for you before we reread it again. So there are two different camps of thought. Actually, there's a few, but there's two big camps of thought when it comes to this passage. The first is that this reflects what we see in the Lord's Supper. Now, the la last week, we actually took the Lord's Supper together, and the Lord's Supper is meant to be taken in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Right? It's to be taken by those who already know the Lord. And it's not to be taken in vain. 
When we take the Lord's Supper, we do so so that we would be reminded of what Jesus did for us on the cross and that we would assess our own hearts to see where we are with Him. Normally, someone who takes to the Lord's Supper is somebody who is living in a way where they are seeking to honor God with their lives and are drawn to Him and are abiding in Him. If you are in a place where you are not in a great place with the Lord, then it's discouraged for you to take the Lord's Supper, to make it right with God first, to repent of your sin, to turn away from that, or to make at least some sort of commitment that you're going to correct things in your life to live for Him. The Lord's Supper, there's nothing magical about it, just like with baptism. It's, it's, it's an illustration. It's a way for us to reflect our own hearts. So there's that camp there too. And some of the things that we're looking at in this passage feel very similar to the Lord's Supper. But then here's the other side of it. And this is the side that I, I, a little, I lean a little bit more to personally. Is that when Jesus is talking about eating of his, his, the, the flesh, the bread, the bread, and drinking His blood, it's more of an all-encompassing, all-consumed thing where we are looking to live as Christ's followers to be consumed with God and His Word. Right When we talk about food, for example, um, in John, we've talked about living water, for example. When he, talked about the, when he talked to the woman at the well, right? when the woman at the well wasn't drinking physical water that she would never be thirsty again, rather she was, she was entrusting her life with Jesus and the water that he gives her, he would never, she would never have to pursue the things of this world again to give her that eternal satisfaction. When it comes to Jesus being the bread of life, it's a very similar illustration that we are to be abiding in Christ. We are to be consumed with His Word. That we are to be ingesting the things that, that, that God gives to us that we would be drawn to Him as disciples. That we would grow closer to Him, grow in sanctification, grow in our knowledge of Him and our love for Him that we would abide in Him and He in us. That's where that's coming from. So in, in that framework let's reread then 52 through 59 so if you got your bibles turn back to 52 through 59 the jews then disputed amongst themselves saying how can this man give us the flesh to eat so jesus said to them unless you true and truly truly i say to you unless you eat the, the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. There's that language, verse 56. If you've read John 15, you'll see the same language there too. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Again, not a physical life, but life eternal. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. God the Father provided manna, and I said this last week, so that the Israelites would physically not be hungry. Jesus was sent as the bread of life so that eternally we would never be hungry again. So this is what it's pointing us to. At least this is what I believe the text is pointing us to, is the work of discipleship. The work that we do as followers of Christ. So here are some components of that. Here are some things that we see in the work of discipleship. One, Bible consumption. Reading God's Word. Being saturated with it. Listening to the things that God is teaching us through His Word. All right, this is a living Word. This is a Word that both, 
both pierces our hearts and comforts us. It's one that gives us guidance and wisdom and correction and teaching and righteousness. It's something that we should be all consumed in, something that feeds our hearts and our soul. Prayer, talking to God, is a, is a work of discipleship. Praying to Him, asking Him for wisdom, direction, discernment, guidance, comfort, to, to converse with Him, even just to, just to talk with Him like you would a father. I think sometimes we treat God like He's a divine waiter, but He's not. He's meant to be our Heavenly Father. We aren't just to give Him a list of things that we want, rather that we are to discuss with Him like we would our own earthly fathers. Maybe in a little bit of a different way because God knows everything in our hearts, right? Can't keep anything from our Heavenly Father. But He loves us and He wants to converse with us. And He does so using His Word. A couple other things that we do as a work of discipleship is we, we serve others. In service and in evangelism, we share the Gospel. We love God and love others by serving them and seeking to have them know who the Lord is. We do so in giving. We do so in discipling. That's kind of a weird one, right? We're talking about the path of discipleship. But as disciples of Christ, we should also be going, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Meaning that we share the Gospel. We draw other people to the Lord. We help them in their own growths and walks in their faith. It should be something that we do as disciples. And then also, lastly, sanctification. Which basically is the process in which God works in us to make us look like His Son, Jesus. And it takes time. And sometimes it can be a little painful. But it's so well worth looking more like Him and being drawn closer to Him. So our lives aren't to just to be saturated with Christ. It shouldn't just be a part of who we are. It should be who we are. And I hope that all makes sense to you. Because <laughs> I know that can be a challenging passage. So the last thing we have is this. In verse 60 through 71, and this, this point will be a little bit shorter. And this is the endurance of discipleship. Endurance of discipleship. Now this, this is kind of a, a, a downer way to end John chapter 6. Because it ends with people leaving Jesus and then it ends with us getting to know Judas and Trust me, you're going to get to know him a lot more. See, after we finished this text, many of those who once followed Jesus had left him. They were offended by what he taught. But can I just say something about that, about things being offensive? When something in the Bible offends us or challenges our thinking, there's not something wrong with the Bible. There's something wrong with us. Now, I can't remember who said that or where I heard that, but if something is offensive to you in the Bible, it is not the Bible that is wrong is something that is wrong with us. Jesus taught something simple and profound. That to be His disciple, one must be drawn by the Father, believe and abide in Christ. However, the, there were disciples that left Jesus. Not just the ones in the crowd, but the ones that heard Him. So how is it that they were called disciples, yet they left Him? Because they were disciples in action and not in heart. In John chapter 2, Jesus talks about how he doesn't entrust himself with all who call, it himself, call, call themselves disciples. See, these disciples that were here at that time did the work of a disciple, right? They followed around their teacher. They listened to what he said. They helped to get him food and provisions in a room. They were disciples in action. They did outwardly what they were supposed to do as disciples, but their hearts were far from him, and that's why they left. They didn't truly belong to him. 
Because true disciples, those that truly follow Christ, do not leave Him. Those who truly follow Christ do not leave Him. Discipleship that is genuine endures hard truths and difficult seasons. I think about the rich young ruler, for example. If you're familiar with the story, uh, there's, a, there's a guy who wants to follow Jesus. And he says, what must I do to follow you? And then Jesus says, go and sell all your possessions and you can follow me. And then he becomes really sad and doesn't do it because he has a lot of stuff. He's rich. He's wealthy. He has everything that he could want in this world. But then Jesus tells him, in order to follow me, you must sell all your stuff and then you can come with, to be with me. Now, does that mean that that instructions for all of us that we should all just go and sell all of our stuff so we can be Christians? No. The reason why he told this young man in particular that he needed to sell all his possessions is because this young man loved his possessions more than anything else. In order for us to follow God, in order for us to follow Christ, he needs to be the thing that we love the most. And this rich young ruler wasn't willing to give up what he loved most to follow Jesus. Therefore, how could he truly ever follow him? If Jesus couldn't be at the throne of his heart, and what's going to sit there is stuff, then how could he truly submit and trust in Jesus more than anything else in this world? Now, a short word on those who maybe don't proclaim Christ anymore. Because I know maybe in this room right now, we have some people that you know, people in your lives, people that you love that were once, once claimed to be Christians, but no longer claimed to be Christians. And there's kind of a twofold way to think about it. On the one hand, when we are saved, truly genuinely saved, we cannot be taken from the Father's hand. So in my mind, what that means is that if there's a conviction of the Holy Spirit still on that person's heart, then even if they feel like they're walking away, they truly can't walk away. The Holy Spirit is going to continue to plague at them and plague at them and plague at them until they make a change or do something different. But there's another hand, there's another side of that where someone claims Christ, someone claims to be a Christian, maybe they've been in church their entire life, but then at one point they walk away from the faith. But there's no conviction of the Holy Spirit, there's no, there's no desire to change, there's no drawing back to the church or to God. And to that person I would have to ask, was Jesus even there in the first place? Now this is where it's important to understand this church, is that we don't know someone's heart. We don't know where someone truly is. There's a lot of people that play church really, really well, but they are doomed to be away from God forever in hell. And it's not our job to know for absolute certainty where they are. Our job is to be faithful, to love them and draw them close to God. So whether you know somebody who has walked away from the faith, whether you believe they are a Christian, but they are just in a really hard place right now, or whether you believe they were never a Christian to start with and they need the gospel, your response should be the same. Love them well. Share the gospel with them faithfully. Because here's the thing about a true disciple. A true disciple is committed to Christ. A true disciple's proclamation of faith is genuine. It's not, it's not emotional. It's not uh, fake. It's a real proclamation of faith. As a youth pastor for 10 years, I can't tell you how frustrating it was to go to these conferences where they would emotionally manipulate teenagers to accept Jesus. I can't tell you how many kids I've had to walk through over and over again to say, are you truly a Christian? And to know that they were actually lost. 
I can't tell you how many kids I've walked through and counseled in their faith in the Lord to know that it, their decision they made wasn't genuine and real, but they did so because their friends did it. Or they did so because they, the music was really good and everyone was raising their hands, so they did too. I can't tell you how many times I've had to counsel teenagers through that, how heartbreaking it is. Because it shouldn't be this emotionally manipulating thing that we do. It should be something that God draws us to and then we celebrate that they know the Lord. But it should be genuine, not fake. You can't fake salvation. It has to be real. And then lastly, a true disciple trusts Christ and endures all things. Whatever season we walk through, whatever difficulty we face, a true disciple endures because they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Not because a true disciple is strong. No, we are very, very weak. But we have the Holy Spirit living in us to help us, to draw us closer to Him and help us to live for Him. And these 12 remained because Jesus had the word of eternal life. These, these 12 main disciples said, how could we leave you when you have the words of eternal life, the things that we need to hear? However, one of these 12 would be a devil. He would fall to his sinful desires and he would betray Jesus, and that's Judas. Let this be a caution for you who proclaim Christ. Okay? Let it be a caution for you. We are still sinful people. Even when we know the Lord, even when we are true disciples of Christ, we will still mess up. There will be times where we fail. But by God's grace, He grants us forgiveness and love. And we're not called to just live in our sin, but we're called to be drawn near to God and correct those things in our life. I mean, look at any Old Testament character who loved God. They have all failed God at some point. But God never left them. You won't be perfect. But it's important that you seek Christ above all things and seek to live the life that He calls you to. This is the path of discipleship. Whether you've never walked it, whether you've just started, whether you've been in it for a while, my hope for you is that you'd be drawn close to God each and every day. Will you pray with me as we have our time of response? Lord, we are grateful for you. We are grateful, Father, that you are the one who saves us. God, that we do not save ourselves. God, we pray wherever we are this morning. God, whether we've never walked with you, or God, whether we have walked with you for a while, but we are really struggling. God, wherever we are on our path of discipleship, God, I pray that you would help us to be drawn near to you. God, that we would know you and that we would love you. God, if there's anyone here this morning that needs help understanding where they are, God, or maybe they know where they are and they need one to have someone pray with them or have someone talk with them, God, I pray that they would use this time and not let it pass. God, I pray as we spend this time in prayer and in reflection, God, that we would look at our own lives and our own heart. And God, that we would assess, are we doing the work of discipleship? God, are we reading your word? Are we praying? Are we evangelizing? Are we discipling? Are we... Are we drawing closer to you each and every day, Father, or are we just coasting? God, I pray wherever we are that you would help us to be near to you and help us to love you well. It's your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen.